to the 2023 Bunga Cast Reading Club, where we're focusing on three big themes across the year, freedom, legitimacy, and globalization. So thank you to everyone who's been with us throughout this year so far, um, going through this question of freedom. As you'll probably know by now, the first four episodes of this year have been dedicated to Martin Hegland and his 2019 book, This Life, Secular Faith and Spiritual Freedom, which we're going to continue to discuss today and try to wrap up by looking at some of the critics. But before that, hello, Phil. Hello, George. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how's it going? Good. I'm quite excited. I'm quite excited to do this because although it's the fourth episode that we're doing now dedicated to the same book, now we're not focusing so directly on the book and kind of going back and reading these critiques and Hagelin's response to them and kind of thinking a little bit more broadly. I'm like, damn, that's that's a good book. <laughs> damn, that's a good book. And I'm, I'm happy to spend more time yeah. with it and its ideas. It is actually really striking how much commentary it's produced and good, you know, high qualities. I mean, as we'll talk about in a moment, I guess, but high quality um, discussion and also discussion in good faith as well. So much of the um, so much of the debate that you see on the left is, you know, either fantastically tedious or bad faith or sectarian. But it is actually quite striking to see um, a measured debate from, you know, from kind of... uh, people who are eminent in one way or another um, willing to engage in in a serious discussion about something ultimately basic about the nature of left-wing politics. I mean, but does that suggest that it's sort of too easy? There's only one of, of the uh, related to the uh, reviews and kind of analyses that we read that kind of basically dismisses the book entirely. I mean, do you want everybody to to uh, enjoy, to love the book that you put out? Shouldn't, don't you want some people to just reject it and to, to dismiss well, which it? One, to, which one do you, which one rejected it? So I think uh, the Jody Dean piece in the um, LA mm. Review of Books was yeah. not too um, complimentary. When Phil said the thing about bad faith, I actually immediately thought of that one. Um, anyway, let, let's, neither, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Did. Yeah, but neither did Robert Pippin, so I don't think he was the only one who rejected it. So right, yeah, yeah. and you know, you know, quality um, goes beyond politics. It can be recognized, you know, beyond beyond uh, even from differing political views. I think everyone would recognize that it's a good book. So anyway, um, in going through this um, through Hegelin's important and inspiring but very readable book, and we've been going through chapter by chapter. Now, what we want to do is, as I said in the last episode, try to kind of put his concepts to work. And we're going to do that by surveying how the book's been received and looking at the critiques it's attracted. Um, and we want to be kind of thoroughgoing in doing this and understanding the reception and the critiques. And there's a whole bunch of um, debates um, about his book on Martin Hegland's website, um, with some journals carrying multiple replies. There's a London, uh, excuse me, LA Review of Books symposium, and we've selected a couple from those to focus on, um, kind of read a whole bunch of them and 
tried to narrow it down just a little bit, um, down to a couple of them, cutting out, for example, Jody Dean's one, which uh, Martin Hagelin responds to it by saying, Jody Dean's claims are completely off target, and Dean manages to misconstrue not only my arguments, but those advanced by Marx, <laughs> which um, is one of the reasons mm. why I kind of excluded that one, not because it takes a strong line against Hagelin's book, but I, you know, you've got to make cuts somewhere. And what I've tried to do in kind of selecting the pieces that we're going to discuss and the critiques that we're going to discuss is in focusing on those which, I guess, one shed contrast, obviously, with, with Hagland, and ideally, as much as possible, look at the politics um, of the question. These are all yeah. critiques questioning what the democratic socialism is that he's talking about, not just um, philosophical explorations about mortality, for example. Yeah, because, I mean, that's, that is... If we had done all of the uh, responses to the book, particularly the ones which are, um, there's a lot of, I guess, philosophy of religion responses, people uh, basically dismissing the book from a religious point of view or get, getting engaged in theological um, debates of various sorts. That's not completely yeah. uninteresting. Does but God I think exist? It I mean, yeah, we, we can pick that up some other time. But no, I, mean, I think it is important to focus on the politics, right? Because it's, that's the... The most in in our discussions in the first three episodes, I think, as it goes through the book and particularly towards a conclusion, where the rubber hits the road, as it is, that's you know where it's a bit more difficult to um, to convince people, perhaps. But uh, yeah, not to preempt too much of that. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, that's right. So we're going to try to tease out these lines of tension with uh, Hagelin's thought, and also compare that to what our issues have been with Hegland as we've gone along. So just give you a little preview of the questions that we're going to discuss. Um, for example, what is Hegland's notion of the post-capitalist democratic state? Who would actually work in the society? Do we need to be compelled or at least to have our work structured so that we actually work? And who's going to carry out this transition to a, this post-capitalist free society? Who is Hegland's agent? political agent. Um, so this, those are some of the questions that we're um, going to be discussing. And the way we're going to do this um, is we um, are going to go through um, various of the critics. Before that, just want to make a couple of announcements. You know where I'm going with this. We have local reading clubs in various cities uh, across North America, Europe, and Australasia. And if you would like to join one, set one up, meet up with other people who are already meeting up, um, that would be great. Email us at info at bungacast.com or post on the Patreon post, um, and we'll try to put you in touch, um, try to put you in touch with other people. And we'd also like to hear back from you. If you are meeting um, and have been meeting over the course of this year, for example, um, do send us an email um, or you know send us a message on Patreon and let us know how it's going. Let us know how many people you are, what you've thought of it so far. Um, we want your feedback, obviously. So um, that'd be great. And um, and then also just wanted to say thank you for joining us for this. Um, this is the fourth episode in our kind of revamped reading club. We try to do something a little bit different each year. We've also incorporated your comments about how to um, how to improve this, basically. And uh, we've tried to be a little bit more in depth on a couple of more limited works. Um, and we hope you have taken from it as much as we have. Um, so thank you for joining us. So just before um, we get to the critics, I thought we could each maybe restate what we individually thought was great or novel or troubling uh, about this life. Phil? I suppose very basically that it's, well, two things. So that he, Hagland, that is, tries to ground an account of, an account of politics, a socialist politics that's grounded in freedom and but not just in kind of an abstract freedom in the sense of a commitment to a particular set of um, 
ideals or uh, you know a particular kind of charter of rights, but in terms of ownership and control over your time. Um, and in a you know in a philosophic in a kind of very uh, basic philosophical sense, and I thought that was you know quite brilliant. And so the strong kind of existential rooting of an account of freedom and of um, what makes human life meaningful and worthwhile, and to offer that as the basis for a socialist politics, and then segueing from that into an account of how our time is not on under our control and squandered, given um, capitalist. Organ, you know, social organization such as it is. So those two things, you know, it seems to me quite, um, you know, like a, a minor, I'd say a minor stroke of genius. Um, so even though the specific arguments he deploys um, are familiar in terms of, you know, the critique of capitalism and the control over time is taken from, um, you know, is just rendered from Marx's capital and the account of, you um, the account of secular faith, as he put it, is an atheist critique of religion infused with, um, you know, kind of existential themes. So all of that is kind of, you know, it's not that there's anything, I don't think there's anything kind of especially um, novel in terms of a philosophical approach, but that it's fused together in a way that is original and compelling. And I think that's worthwhile. George? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been an interesting opportunity to reflect on a book after you've read it. Normally, I kind of, you know, finish reading a book, we might do an episode on it, and I might pick it up again later. But the fact that we've had, you know, this extra time to to read it, to read all the reviews after having finished it. Yeah, so what has really stuck with me, I think the, just the, the level of ambition, I mean, basically what Phil was saying, trying to condense all of those things, though, into one book, it's you know, that is, that it, there is something which is um, pretty impressive about just that, like uh, reaching for that, that level of <clears throat> systematicness within the philosophy and comprehensiveness. Um, I think that the critique of religion or the kind of early parts of the book, actually the humanism that comes through there, it's not like these kind of, oh, everybody who's religious is an idiot. It's trying to provide this imminent critique, i.e. religion or his particular interpretations can't live up to the promises that they that they give because those ultimate end states are self are, are contradictory i think another point it's a an attempt to try and value free time that doesn't defend or endorse ubi which is you know and we've obviously talked about how he gets to this position but that's that's kind of he hasn't gone for the easy answers but i'm a bit wondering if some of the sheen for me is is has come off the the, the whole book because of the conclusion that kind of you know, he, he goes through Martin Luther King, he kind of, it, it there's there's something maybe, and that's obviously what we're going to discuss today, around who's going to, you know, who's going to do this, what are the politics of it, that, and maybe I'm expecting too much of it, of course, but that is something which, on reflection, I'm a bit like, hmm, that isn't that more the question today, then how should we, you know, how should we live, what are the ethical foundations, you know, what are we going to, what are we going to do about it? But no, I think, um, yeah, very good, very good choice, Alex, for the first book of the, the reading club, I have to say. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, for me, I think the uh, kind of building on what you guys have said is this focus on freedom um, and a freedom which isn't just a negative freedom, not just in the sense of non-interference as it's kind of understood in kind of liberal thought or even a kind of uh, the idea of non-domination um, as in Republican thought, but a, a, a notion of freedom which is not negative also in the sense of this that like, oh, okay, well, all this bad stuff that we have in capitalism, well, in this future free society under communism, everything's going to be great. But actually, you know, he gives 
that a little bit um, a little bit of more structure than that. Um, this freedom is not just hey, you won't have to work or you won't have to work as much, but it's a freedom which is quite intimately linked with notions of responsibility and commitment, um, which are not opposed, but um, as Hegland has it, necessary complements. And I think that kind of gives it a little bit, um, you know, gives his notion of freedom a much less flabby feel than I think a lot of um, discussions and particularly kind of utopian visions often present. Um, and it, because it does that, and if you take him seriously and go, well, actually, this is a politics you want to build on, it cuts so much to the root. I mean, it's truly radical in that sense that um, it ends up cutting through. It's like a knife that cuts through all these other layers of politics and political questions that we often deal with and discuss about redistribution or peace or recognition or state power, authority, republicanism, etc. And kind of goes, okay, well, let's forget kind of to a certain extent, not forget everything we know about politics. But if this is the the goal of a, of a truly free life structured around our ability to determine collectively for ourselves what to do with our free time, then you can kind of push away a lot of other things from the side and start to reconstruct a politics on that basis. Or at least that's what it seems to promise, and we're going to come to uh, we're going to come to that because that's obviously one of the one of the questions that we're going to deal with. Before before we do that, I just wanted to ask because you said that the notion of freedom is is not flabby that that Hagland gives, and yeah, I think that is, I think that, that actually hits the nail on the head. It is quite you know it's quite a demanding, uh, like all the best kind of existentialist philosophers makes the point that freedom is you know is uh, not easy it's not like the it's not flabby i guess Freedom it's not like free. you just... it takes people like you and well me. i was i was uh, <laughs> seeing myself like heading towards that phrase and so i had to kind of um change direction at the last minute but no i think there is something in in that as well like he's it is a book about you know about freedom but it's not it doesn't take these these easy options these kind of flabby it's more sinewy or whatever it, it yeah, would be yeah, the alternative yeah, sinewy, yeah i like that um that's good Okay, so um, these critical pieces that we're going to go through um, to let you know just what they are, we're going to kind of take turns introducing them. Um, but we have some pieces from the LA Review of Book Symposium, one by Walter Ben Michaels, one by Benjamin Kunkel, one by William Clare Roberts. Um, and then we have uh, a piece by Robert Pippin, the Hegel scholar, uh, a piece by Leah Epi, and one more by Connell Cash. So anyway, we're going to go, um, Phil, why don't you start us off and tell us... Um, the critique that you're presenting is yeah so the first is michael's walter ben michael's and this was part of a um symposium on the book in the los angeles review of books alex has already mentioned so walter ben michael's is an american literary theorist um and he he's uh, been published he's was based as an academic he was based at the university of illinois and he's published a number of books dealing with american literature but also critical theory and identity politics and um, let's say, I think it was the weakest of the various um, critiques that we read around the book. And seems to me a lot of it is kind of, um, you know, kind of pettifogging around uh, language constructions and a frustration even with the need for um, a frustration with the need for digging all this ground, essentially, that Hagland digs, the philosophical ground, the attempt to um, account for uh, the nature of a secular faith or the meaning of commitment, as you've said, Alex, or the need for any kind of existential pillars or the need for even talking in terms of freedom, let alone the kind of the um, critique of political economy that's built into the book. And it moves kind of fairly um, 
I don't know, in a very, you know, in a kind of flimsy, in a in a way that's at once flimsy and brusque to move to the basic kind of point of um, why are we even bothering with all this when what we need really is just an engine of redistribution of wealth. So massively kind of deconcentrate wealth or to redistribute wealth downwards and all of these other Highfalutin questions are essentially, um, you know, they're kind of a distraction from that from that central project. And there's even a side swipe in the piece again for um, for the benefit of um, Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, you know, so it just it never nothing about it seems especially serious to me. So um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I found it disappointing. I don't know if you guys thought differently. And then the other the other critic that I dealt with um, for the purposes of our discussion today was Robert Pippin. And it makes me suspect that Alex kind of set out giving me these two, that Alex set out to basically kind of sabotage or undermine what I was going to say by giving me the two most Never. annoying, <laughs> the two most annoying critical thinkers. And this was the most disappointing, I think, because if there was, you know, in terms of all the people we've looked at, you know, the most kind of philosophically august, I suppose, or the most intellectually kind of eminent personage of all the critical thinkers we've looked at for Hagland, it was definitely Robert Pippin. You know, he's a very, he's a professor at the University of Chicago. He's a very serious Hegel scholar. He's been important in the revival of um, Hegelianism in the Anglophone Academy um, and all of that. And so, you know, it's very disappointing to see this, um, to read this critique. Which didn't seem again. By the way, kind I, I gave seemed... you. I, I suggested you do that one because I think you're the one who's most familiar with Hegel out of the three of us. So I thought it might be most interesting well, for you to. Look. Yeah, you're that interested is... in Hegelianism, as as you <laughs> insist on pronouncing it. It's definitely true that um, you know that your guys' um, familiarity with dialectics is slight. Let's put it that way to be generous. Um, Never sorry, heard of it, mate. Without notwithstanding Did you say that, your geist or your 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 guys. Anyway, let's go. It was corny, but um, it was you know. It, so I don't. I mean, when I read the when I read Pippin's critique, all I heard basically, I immediately heard. I mean, he's American, obviously, but I heard this Oxford philosopher's voice in my head. This kind of annoying, squawky. Um, senior common room Oxford analytical philosopher kind of um, taking issue with words. So, you know, he makes, he kind of opens up by saying, well, what does it mean to be committed to have secular faith? What is the difference between having faith? Why do you need faith? What's the difference between that and commitment? We can just imagine a squawking Oxford philosopher who's never written anything in his life, but is kind of, you know, goes to the common room to annoy people and drink port. And he says, you know, well, I don't see why you need this uh, notion of faith. What does it more offer than uh, what you already have with commitment? You know, it's just so annoying. Um, And so he made anyway, his claim is there is redundancy in the idea of faith, intellectual, conceptual redundancy. There's no need for it if you understand commitment properly. He makes the claim more importantly, I think, and more substantively that the Hegelian project is inevitably rooted in the early 19th century, that there is no the um, there is no way in which, given the uh, historical, social, institutional, ideological development of modern society over the last 150 years, that we're in a position for the kind of um, for the kind of to cultivate the kind of individuals 
that involve the kinds of commitments that Hagland expects in order to kind of bear the weight of his project. And so it's simply beyond us. And that, I think, is a more kind of, you know, that's a more um, uh, important and substantive criticism. And then he also makes the claim kind of connected to that, that there is that there is no um, Hagland doesn't meaningfully or convincingly offer a vision of how his solutions would get over problems that would continue. Um, and so he makes so Pippin makes the odd example of um, makes the odd example of advertising, for instance, that how would we deal with the fact that our kind of thought and our moral, I just suppose moral autonomy is so deeply compromised by all sorts of things, and that these that we would have we would carry through into socialism all sorts of disputes. Um, and we would still require authoritative, centralized power in order to mediate those disputes that, you know, effectively would compromise everything that Hagland is committed to. And both of those, um, you know, both of the, well, rather all of those points seem to me to be, you know, that Hagland has convincing answers to them. Now, we, we can't have socialism because we have OnlyFans thoughts. So, you know. do you well, I mean, you do, Alex. Do you <laughs> should we I mean, should we talk about the should we talk about the Hagland's responses now or should we go through all the criticisms first? Well, let's go through the criticisms and then I mean, if if you want to highlight something specific about Hagland's response because I think in that case Hagland responds directly to Pippin. So maybe you want to highlight that right now, Phil. Yeah, so I mean, Hagelin's response, I thought, was very, you know, it's devastating in effect, you know, and it made, um, I thought, you know, it was kind of embarrassing to see that Pippin's criticisms were so, um, were such, you know, kind of so insignificant pinpricks, I'd even go as far as to say, you know, so Hagelin makes the point about the fact that the very, you know, the nature of the socialist transformation that he envisages and the demands that it would involve inevitably kind of um, would involve a degree of kind of transformation, both in terms of a mass politics that would transform the individuals engaged with it, but also as part of the transformation it wreaks in society, that it would also transform that society in ways that would establish um, the basis of a new kind of society. And, you know, now, now obviously maybe, um, you know, maybe that transformation is impossible and maybe Hagland doesn't explain it how it might, I mean, doesn't explain how it might happen. But it seems to me, you know, a very basic dialect, any kind of basic dialectical understanding would enable you to see at least the logical possibility that the process of transformation determines the way you end up, you know, the kind of the character of the transformation would determine the end goal itself. And so that would seem to me to answer Pippin's kind of uh, Pippin's objection. Um, yeah, so but I, I think it's still, I think there's still something in it to the extent that, you know, James Hartfield's Death of Subject Explained, I think is, a for me, I think at least it came to mind, this idea that, yeah, there is, there is a requirement that you need to somehow almost kickstart the process of, of um, accepting responsibility and reasserting subjectivity and that is the starting point of a transition which then kind of builds on itself for, for you to be able to achieve political well maybe but I, mean, I think that... but it is still like i think i don't think i think Pip, the way pippin puts it isn't correct but we do have a society that is in denial of subjectivity and so there is this at, at present you don't have the sorts of people who would probably be required to put Hagman's like um uh project into into like reality but 
the response to that isn't to say, well, the historical times passed. It's instead to say, how do you reestablish those bases of subjectivity? Mm. Or that's how Hartford. But would it's put not it, even. But I, I don't think even. I don't think Pippin is quite saying the historical moment has passed. I think he's saying, you know, for that possibility, I think he's just misses the fact that the process of transformation, by its very nature, would create the society that we're seeking to establish. So, I mean, you know, I take your point, but I mean, the point is, I think it's it's just a basic dialectical maneuver that you would expect Pippin, as a you know, as a yeah. serious and accomplished Hegelian, that he would understand that, you know. So it seemed, or you know, that he would at least give Hagland the benefit of the doubt on that question. And then Hagland's other responses, I mean, I thought they were, you know, I mean, I think he makes the case about faith being, it's a matter of, uh, you know, it's a question of time that uh, a commit, it's not just a, a logical matter of commitment being the same thing as having faith, but faith is something which has to endure against the kind of the, you know, the slings and arrows and of time itself. And that is why faith is required. So this kind of, um, this petty linguistic shell game, or this linguistic shell game that, you know, Pippin starts out with saying, oh, well, there's no real difference between these two words in, you know, this kind of, like I say, the analytic philosopher vein, um, where Pippin, uh, sorry, Hagland responds, you know, very effectively that faith is about an enduring commitment over time. And that is why it requires faith, because by its very nature, there is no guarantees or certainties in the commitments and the choices that you make, which is why it does require, you know, a certain leap, a certain kind of existential mm -hmm. leap. So yeah. I thought his, you know, I thought his responses were um, entirely convincing. Um, in, and Pippin's kind of uh, seemed to me to be uh, somewhat willfully kind of obdurate and lacking in, um, you know, lacking in generosity, intellectual generosity that's required for a debate of this kind of seriousness. You do indeed got to have faith, as a wise, yeah. wise man put it. Yeah. Um, no, I think I think that's a good a good summary. And I think I would I would definitely agree that the in the in the kind of back and forth it, yeah, I didn't. It, it didn't give me any new. I think in either of those pieces that much any new understanding of what the of the strengths and weaknesses of of Hagland's um, book. It was. I didn't think they sort of left uh, that much of a mark. I, I don't know about an insignificant pinprick. I mean, pinprick could be could be pretty could be pretty painful depending on where it is. Um, it could, that depends you know, if you lack subjectivity, George. If, if you goes, do, then a pinprick will be very painful. Yeah, that's true. But a pinprick, it, like if it's up the the nose, then it could be like a lobotomy. I mean, that's obviously not what I think you were saying. Anyway, I think I'm getting a little bit off the point. Um, the two that I um, had were, I think, a bit more directly um, political. The first one was Connell Cash in Boundary, and uh, Cash is a PhD student in French um, at Cornell. And so this is a fairly long uh, piece. So I think particularly the the fourth and fifth sections are the, the bits that we we sort of said we'd we'd concentrate in on a little bit and yeah so there's two two things that the cash kind of uh, focuses on in his criticisms of, of Hagland or his analysis of of the book the first is agency and the second is the nature of the state so I think there's a good uh, it's quite a sympathetic review and there's a there's a good summary um of I guess or he or he gets how the one of the things that 
that um, Hagman is trying to do is to give an imminent critique of capitalism on the basis of time. What do I mean by that? Well, that's at least the way that I put it down in my notes. So he says, democratic socialism is the name Hagman gives to an economic form that would make socially available free time its measure of value, fulfilling the promise that capitalism presents by implicitly grasping that the time of finite life is the measure of all value while failing to realise it. And I think that is a good encapsulation because the idea is that there's a... um, and as we've talked about in the other episodes, there is a sort of claim here that capitalism has these values or these things which are insert, asserted implicitly. If you make those things explicit and you take them to their fullest conclusion, then there's a contradiction there. Capitalism is 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 unable, or liberalism, unable to live up to the, um, the claims that they uh, supposedly um, have a central. But one of the interesting things is that he sort of then, or Cash, then interprets this in terms of alienation. And so he... Um, he sees this way of, or Hagman's whole argument as essentially something about what is the nature of alienation moving beyond what I think he quite unfairly says are the kind of instrumental, narrow understandings of alienation in the Marxist tradition or that some Marxists have put forward. And so instead of trying to reunite us with this situation of like having a, a, a free connection to our labor and this kind of primitive communism of, of being able to access the the products of our labor very easily. Instead, uh, Cash's interpretation is that Hagland, but, you know, takes seriously the idea that in a post-capitalist society, you have to have a, an architecture, a structure of collective decision-making. And that's, um, that's the, the state. Um, so, yeah, I guess what I found interesting um, in this is that the, conclusion that cash puts forward is basically that hagden follows Postone in saying that you know sorry it's one of these like this person says this person and, and that person but this idea that in fact politically the conclusion of hagland's whole thesis the whole book <clears throat> is that the working class don't really have a particularly elevated um or central place in political transformation um instead because they and this is kind of simplifying it a lot but because they get their position of power from their role within capitalism, um, instead there's no real direct interest um, for the working class to be the the subject of a transformation. Um, and instead, I think it's fair to say cash essentially. Um, in if Hagland is saying we need a state after capitalism, that's the thing which um, institutionalizes all these decisions, which are making about the economy and about time. Instead, he kind of says, well, what about this earlier idea of the withering away of the state? So you have this transitional, like there's a certain um, set of agents in society, the proletariat, they take the state, for use it for their own interest, dictatorship for the proletariat. Um, I think listeners might have heard this story before, but this is a bit simplified. Um, and then it withers away. And so you actually don't have a state. So Hagland's kind of essentially wrong to see that a post-capitalist society would have the continuity or the continuation of something like a um, a state form as that kind of uh, collection of or that collective self legislation. So that's the that's my very heavily summarised um, uh, take on on Connell Cash's, which I think which I enjoyed reading. I think I think actually I got the the two that I enjoyed reading the most or I got the most out of um, because I think they were both pushing at. So if if Cash was um, agency in the state. Leah Epes, um, who's a professor at LSE, she was interested in agency and justification. So again, similar sort of questions of who, of who is going to do this kind of do the work, as you might put it, um, for Hagland. 
And I think there's though one thing I would disagree with in EP's um, piece is that <clears throat> so she sort of says, well, Hagelin gets it wrong um, because in his critique of liberalism, he says, oh, you know, liberalism can't um, can't realize the ideas of freedom and equality. We shouldn't give these ideas to liberalism. Instead, the moral worth of persons is a consequence of in- the Enlightenment. So essentially, I think EP is a bit more concerned with, you know, how do you um, defend these ideas, not as an extension or the culmination of liberalism, but on their own basis. But I think I disagreed with this because it seems to me that, again, one of the, you know, used this idea of imminent critique a few times, but um, I think that's one of the great strengths of what Hagman's trying to do is, is you know, that, that classic idea of what are the central motivating concepts within this, um, within capitalism, within liberalism, and how do they, how are they impossible to realize given a prior um, contradiction or the foundation in his case, in Hagman's case, this is all about time, um, not allowing that to, that to happen. So yeah, I think the, um, yeah, so, so EP says that, um, <clears throat> so liberalism does not own freedom and equality. And if we assimilate such ideas to liberal tradition, we fail to understand how liberal liberalism often corrupted them. And I think, you know, in reality, we did Dominic Lucerdo's book on liberalism account history a little while ago. Yeah. In reality, these things do kind of get compromised or corrupted, but I think the whole point of Hagland's account is if you take these things, uh, liberalism capitalism as the best possible um the most complete the most like this is is what marx does as well like you look at things at their kind of pinnacle rather than their kind of corrupted um implementation in the real world then you can see that there is still um there are still contradictions and still problems there so yeah i mean can i ask what you thought was the um what was the import like what was the consequence of eb's attempt to say, look, we shouldn't go through liberalism, um, but actually it's, you know, republicanism or, you know, kind of enlightenment ideas of equal worth of human being, which are the things that we need to kind of go in and through and have an imminent critique of, not liberalism. I mean, I'm like, I can accept that, but what is the, what's the consequence of that? Well, yeah, good, good question. I think it's probably just the, um, well, I guess the way that she sees this um, playing out is that she says that Essentially, and this is a quote from from her, Hagelin's formula for democratic socialism is liberal democracy minus capitalism. And if we could only st- strip liberal democracy of capitalism, we would come up with the right form of social organization. And I think that's that's a, I think that's right in a sense, her attributing that to Hagland, but only if you then say, or you miss the point that Hagland makes, I think a lot in the book that it's about what is the, what is the, um, the logical endpoint of liberal democracy. So not liberal democracy as we have today, but liberalism pushed to its furthest limits. So I think the fact that she kind of throws out this idea of imminent critique, she sort of then, you kind of go a completely different route instead of this point that we've made quite a few times on the podcast that maybe the the task today is to try and get those basic ideas of liberalism, like (laughs) freedom, equality, freedom of speech, and try and push them further and defend them and extend them past past um, past liberalism into into uh, something else. But yeah, I think it's a good it's a good piece. I enjoyed reading both of the two of uh, the ones that I had. I didn't have any squawking um, port drenched 
uh, Oxford philosophy professors in my ears whilst reading them. And yeah, I can't obviously do justice to, to these two pieces, but I would um, yeah definitely recommend listeners to, if they've read the book to, to pick these up because I think they both alight on this question of, you know, agency. Who is gonna who is gonna do this? Who is there and that doesn't come internally from from Hagman's um theory, I don't think. So there is something there. I thought um the I thought the EP was more kind of a a series of questions, some of which were quite unfair. You know, like I mean she brings she also focuses quite a bit on kind of questions of global development, um the imperial estate and how that factors into this picture, which seems to me, I mean. On the one hand, it seems to me unfair to expect a book of this kind of already of this kind of, you know, um, significant breadth and depth and ambition to expect it to also deal with questions of global development and imperialism. Um, and I also couldn't help but feel that maybe there was some academic kind of, um, you know, um, I suppose some academic jockeying for favoured, you know, favoured intellectual kind of uh, projects, I suppose. And the fact that the Enlightenment and Republicanism were overlooked by Hagland didn't seem to me to be, um, you know, so problematic because those strains are also bound up to some degree in liberalism. But also I don't, you know, I don't, I mean, she takes liberalism and democracy, I think she, from what I recall, she kind of takes them as synonymous. Um, when in fact they're already kind of, you know, they're not synonymous. It's a kind of, it's a, an unstable an unstable amalgam that is the result of, you know, about 150 years or so of uh, class struggle and political and economic development in modern capitalism. So I think, I mean, I'm more sympathetic if Hagland is saying that liberal, you know, the socialism is essentially liberal democracy without capitalism, which is to say without private property ownership, you know, that seems to me legitimate and, you know, like... Um, a good a good package, in fact, and that the contradictions you... and the tensions between liberalism and democracy are indeed reconciled if you can overcome capitalism, and that seems to hmm. me worthwhile. So, if somebody offers you liberal democracy with no capitalism, you'd 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 accept that deal. I would. You'd, you'd shake I their hand on that. Yeah, I, think I, would, I would definitely. Too. I would definitely take that offer. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's. Um, yeah, I, I guess we're going to touch on some of these, like tie some of these things together actually so I, I will I will not not come in with the point that I was going to Alex and because we've still got a couple more of these um, these criticisms to, to run through Yeah, so to run through the last, uh, the remaining two um, from our selection of critics, um, both of these are from the LA Review of Books uh, Symposium. And uh, the first is by Benjamin Kunkel, um, who's an American novelist and political economist, and was the um, co-founder and co-editor of the journal N Plus One. I mean, he makes basically two points which are connected. One is that, well, you know, the rich in capitalism have free time. So isn't that basically, you know, their own little communism? And isn't Hagelin's ideas about an economy of time, and might not they they be appropriated by the rich today to go well? Actually, you know this is this is fine for me. Um, and the second concerns um, who would perform the necessary labor in a free society. Um, so just to run this through a little bit, and I think this is one of the punchiest 
um, pieces there. Um, it's the ones which kind of really cut to, um, I guess, Hagelin's vision. Um, and so, um, and maybe don't get caught up in so much of the maybe kind of academic grandstanding or something that some of the others might do um, to a certain extent. Um, so to, to take a quote from uh, Kunkel's piece, uh, I don't know how to articulate philosophically my intuition that an ordinary citizen under democratic socialism would be happier than even an exceptionally rich person is today. It seems that Hagelin doesn't know either. With this, life would have been a stronger book had it demonstrated the existential bankruptcy of capitalist wealth, no matter how abundantly endowed with free time the wealthy may be. Um, so I thought it was a kind of a curious critique that he makes there um, in saying that basically you, you haven't said why, um, you know, why capitalism is bad enough. Um, what is better, you know, qualitatively better about your society? And why would it be, why would the ordinary person, you know, in a kind of, Rawlsian veil. Um, if you, if you, if you to say, you know, drop you in, and you're an ordinary person under democratic socialism, why would your life be better than you as a very rich person in capitalism is? You know, would you have more free time? Would you be genuinely freer? Um, and he kind of, you know, Kunkel kind of pushes and pulls at that question, and it might be worth kind of returning to um, in trying to understand this. Although, you know, one answer to that might also be, well, you know, it's not going to be rich people in capitalism, the winners of capitalism who are going to be convinced by this, um, by this vision of democratic socialism anyway. So why do we need to convince them? Um, anyway, that might, that's one, that's one to, I guess, consider when we come to these questions of agency. Um, the, I think more pertinent point is that, um, Kunkel says, you know, kind of pushes at this question of socially available free time requiring people to do socially necessary labor time, to make that free time um, possible, right? So let me quote again, time that is free or disposable in the sense of being devoted to the enjoyment of individual purposes, for example, playing the piano or loafing on a lawn, can only exist on the material basis of time spent reducing the means of enjoyment, e.g. manufacturing, delivering, and tuning pianos or seeding, fertilizing, and mowing lawns on the part of the people who in most cases would rather be doing something else. So, you know, if you, free person under democratic socialism, want to spend your time playing the piano and loafing on the lawn, if those are your commitments that you have, well, you know, who's left to be the one, you know, manufacturing pianos or, you know, mowing the lawn for you? Um, who, what actually uh, is necessary for necessary labor to be performed um, is some more uh, formal organization of work, argues Kunkel. Um, so, you know, he feels that Hagland idealizes this informality where, you know, we kind of spontaneously will work um, freely um, out of our own free will and out of desire to to contribute to society. Um, instead, Kunkel says, well, actually, no, you know, formal labor may be demanding or exploitative, but it has its clear limits. You know, you know when the workday is done, whereas this work, which is based purely on your own volition or on your own commitments, can be extremely exploitative or demanding. And he gives the example of housework, um, you know, where, for example, mother's work would never be done because, you know, you can always, more can always be demanded of you. Um, your working day can be infinite. It's not like you can clock out as a mother or a homemaker, for example. Um, so um, paid work in a socialist society, says Kunkel, is actually more realistic and preferable to Hagelin's misty imaginings in which free time and socially necessary labor time blur into one another. 
So hey, so I think what Kunkel basically says, you know, under under democratic socialism, you'll ha- still have to have paid work. It won't be exploitative wage labor, but there'll still be payment for labor, um, and it'll be structured. Um, and just to make a note, I get a hint at um, what Hagelin's response is to this. Again, I think Hagelin provides a very convincing answer um, in um, his response in the LA Review of Books Symposium. And he basically takes two tacks. Firstly, which is this question of, you know, loafing on the lawn, which is the example that he returns to. He says, well, that isn't real freedom. You know, that is the freedom as imagined from the perspective of work under capitalism, where the only kind of freedom that we can imagine is to loaf around on a lawn. That isn't, that actually might be quite an alienating form of freedom. Um, It's, you know, um, which is kind of uh, an answer, I guess, that we've discussed. Yeah, it might also be a bit... um, a bit discriminating against people with hay fever i'm i'm currently suffering today and the idea that of loafing on a lawn that doesn't sound like uh, like a very good time to me so i just wanted to throw that but in i think on, under the democratic socialism that would be like you know the appropriate gulag for george so it wouldn't be like sending him to the salt mines in siberia but just to like letting him loaf on a lawn without too much oppression <laughs> so that would be that would be yeah. a punishment george and that would be the civilized that would be the civilized punishment that democratic socialism would inflict on you. Yeah, and give give me a, a phone, but really spotty Wi-Fi or reception, so that I'm I have no distractions and I just have to inhale the pollen. Yeah, I mean, look, if I step out of line, I'm happy. I'm happy to. Would you take it? You'd take that. You'd take that package. <sighs> yeah, yeah. If that I was the if that was the gulag. Yeah. Yeah. As long, yeah. As long as, <laughs> as long as. But uh, before we start sending all ourselves to Gulag voluntarily, um, that's what I want to do with my free time. <laughs> let's let's move on. Um, but you know, I think also Hagelin's point is that, um, or hints at that, you know, work would still be structured. That people would have kind of formal commitments based on their practical identities to work, um, and so it wouldn't be merely something that is kind of decided upon spontaneously and irregularly, you know, in the way that like, well, today I decide to loaf on the lawn, maybe tomorrow I'll work. Um, maybe another day I will, another day I won't. Um, so I, I think Hagelin provides a response, which is not entirely conclusive, because there's still the question of how to structure work, what the division is between socially necessary labor time and socially available free time um, in Hagelin's vision. But I think at least as concerns Kunkel's um, critique, I think Hagelin, I, I find him fairly convincing and so to move on to um the last of of the kind of critical um pieces we're going to discuss uh it's by william claire roberts a professor of political science and author of marx's inferno the political theory of capital which is a book um very much focused on marx's republicanism or trying to unearth marx's kind of republican commitments and this critique is possibly the most um complicated one. And so I, I, I worry I'm not going to do justice in kind of explaining it back on the podcast, because a lot of the disc, a lot of the points made are kind of um, nested within other points. So um, I think um, to kind of try to drive at what is um, kind of critical here, I mean, Claire Roberts makes three basic points about um, the fact that the free development of individualities in Marx isn't the same as individual freedom. Secondly, that um, the socialist critique of liberalism is not fully imminent, that effectively Hayek has the answers, even if we don't like them. He's kind of fine with liberalism being as it is. He doesn't need some post-capitalist alternative. Um, And then also about questions of coordination um, under socialism. 
So um, to take these in turn, um, I think firstly there's this there's this question that the that there's an absence of the social republic in Hegelin's account, argues William Clare Roberts, um, and that this apparently speaks to an apolitical tendency in his thought. Um, in fact, the individual freedom that Hegelin wants isn't actually the same as the free development of individuality, and the free development of individuality would require um, this sort of republic of non-domination um, for, for it to be realized. I'm not entirely sure what I, I, I see the kind of consequence of that point. Um, the second one regards this uh, question of the imminent critique, um, which relates a little bit to what we've been just talking about. Um, William Clare Roberts argues that the imminent critique that Hagelin makes of liberalism is valid for the thinkers that he deals with, for Mills, for Keynes, and for Rawls, who you can all turn to and kind of go, well, look, if you believe in liberalism and democracy, if this is your vision of of the world, then what you actually need to do is overcome capitalism, because capitalism is never going to be able to realize these things that you hold to. Um, But he, but the, but that isn't the case for Hegel, uh, excuse me, for Hayek, um, because for Hayek, uh, he actually his his vision is realized in capitalism, um, so that so long as the state is restricted to promulgating simple universal rules and providing basic public goods, Hayek thinks that the freedom of each is compatible with a similar freedom for every other. Um, so there's no real aha gotcha moment um, in in providing a you know in in uh, critiquing Hayek and performing an imminent critique of Hayek. Um, and then and then finally the the third point um, is a question of kind of collective. Action. Um, supposedly, according to William Clare Roberts, Hegelin ignores the problem of coordination. He kind of assumes that we all collectively, individually and collectively, have the same objectives. And so we can just, so the issue is of just coming together in this democracy, the central organizing site, um, and debate on what should be done, how society should be organized, and ignores that people might have conflicting aims. Uh, both individuals might conflict with one another, but also that groups will conflict with one another. And Hegelin has no real way of providing coordination of for that, um, of, of resolving that problem of coordination. And I think that is a, a kind of a, a, a tricky question, a tricky question which we should deal with um, in, in just a second. Um, and I think a kind of a, a related point about this, just to round this off, is that um, Hegel... Uh, William Clare Roberts basically holds that you know if you have, that the democratic state is something which can check power and determine what representatives can do, but that it's not a mode of collective self-legislation or self-expression. Only his social republic can provide that. And so he makes this contrast between Hegelin's liberal democracy without capitalism and his own vision of a social republic, um, which would be kind of more which would be a, a true free association. Um, whereas I, I think he seems to be suggesting that Hagelin's still too wedded to um, liberal democracy as we understand it with kind yeah. of representation and limits on power rather than being a kind of thing where the state is has kind of withered away and it becomes a free association of the producers. Yeah, um, so I, I, mean, should... I mean, I'm not sure that's exactly, I'm not sure I agree with that, but I have to say this was the most frustrating criticism. So any, anyone who know, who's seen or encountered William Clare Roberts on Twitter or in you know social media will know that he's a terrible liberal weenie. And as, um, as Vladimir Ilyich and the Donald said, he's definitely an enemy of the people and he would definitely be put on, you know, he would definitely be sent to life on the lawn in the gulag under democratic socialism. 
he um, can he can come hang out with me. We can yeah, uh, we can chill. So, so given all you know, given that um, you know, I have to say I thought his this was the most subtle, um, the best, the most incisive critique. Actually, I think I mean I think there are answers to it, not all of which Hagland can provide on the basis of the arguments that he kind of offers in response or in the book as a whole. Um, but I do have to say I thought this was. Um, in many ways, the smartest and most politically important of the criticisms, at least of the ones that we're, mm. you know, are directly addressing here, which is annoying, obviously, given how how, irrit- <laughs> how irritating Roberts's politics is. Is it like yeah. that um, for you, Phil? It's like that meme of the most, the worst person you know just made a great point. You just see that. I mean, you you, put, you probably <laughs> experience yes. that a lot when when <laughs> podcasting as well. That's just that your whole true. life. Just well, it's not it's not in the academy because in the academy mostly you know these guys mostly criticisms are a lot of criticisms are very dumb. Let's put it that way. Be generous, um, but this, these I thought were very good. Anyway, let's let's get it more into yeah. it. So. Yeah. So the way we're going to do this, um, try to boil down um, and you know kind of reduce these various questions which come from different angles and without kind of trying to get involved too much in what the basis of thought, um, the kind of intellectual and philosophical priors of all these critics are. We don't want to do that. What instead we're going to do is trying to kind of boil down five key questions that have emerged from the reading of these critiques um, and discuss them in relation to to Hagelin's um, book. The first of these is, how is it possible to avoid banalizing secular faith into a therapeutic ethos? Um, how does it become not just about like, hey, you should, you know, care about your family and the things that are around you? Um, and, and you know, kind of secondly, following on from that, what is really the connection between secular faith and spiritual freedom? Do you need all that stuff about secular faith? And I think these are two critiques that are voiced in different ways by uh, Walter Ben Michaels and Robert Pippin. You know, basically, yeah. when Walter Ben Michaels mm-hmm. says, hey, you know, all this stuff about caring, that's really gay. Let's just, you know, have some proper redistribution. Yeah, I mean, it's very, I think it's it's kind of, it's, I thought it was striking coming from, you know, the fact that he's um, he's a literary kind of theorist who's very familiar and he brings up Derrida in the crit- critique of Hagland. So he's very familiar with all the kind of, um, that kind of peak of postmodern linguistic philosophy. And given that, he's very, you know, I just thought it was striking how flippant the criticism was, because it may it's yeah. very clear in Hagland's claim that spiritual freedom, he's not using spiritual in the, I mean, inevitably, you know, if you say, and I had this whenever I taught Hegel at, you know, university, if you say spiritual, everyone immediately obviously thinks of like, you know, crystal Reiki healing and Western Buddhism and all of that, you know, and it's, uh, it's deeply debased in our contemporary kind yeah. of, um, you know, modern capitalism, but in the meaning that Hagland gives it, which, you know, he makes very clear that it's the ability not only to have, um, you know, a kind of uh, autonomy and freedom of nat- from natural impulses to a degree which even animals have, but also to set your own goals for yourself rather than simply follow goals that are biologically set for you. And so, and that's how he defines it. So he defines it in a way which, you know, I mean, if there was another way to define it that didn't involve the word spirit, you know, I'm sure that would, you know, suffice. But, you know, spiritual is taken from taken from the original Hegelian source. And also, you know, it captures something of the of the um, 
the kind of the I suppose the inevitably ethereal quality of agency, the fact by its very nature, the fact that itself that it can transform itself gives it this you know it can't be captured in something which can um, be easily kind of constricted or limited in terms of some you know kind of banal academic definition. So I don't you know this kind of attempt to sweep it away, like you say, and say this spiritual freedom is you know, is kind of this flippant thing. Why do we even need to bother with it? All this stuff about caring is gay. Let's just redistribute. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, just it's unconvincing. I, I think, I think what better way, another way to phrase this actually, which I should maybe should have done for the start is, you know, can we not have Hegelian's politics without the philosophy? You know, that's what I think these critiques are basically saying. Can we not dispense with all this question of mortality, commitment to those we care about, you know, secular faith? Yeah. How do, you know, we can just cut that off and go, can we have not yeah. have a politics of free time where we have to work less? You yeah, know? I mean, I think, and this is why I think Hagland is, you know, why his ambition at least is admirable, is because he takes, I mean, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't begin from the failures of um, the Russian Revolution and everything else that happened in the 20th century. He doesn't offer kind of a critique of Stalinism and what have you. But I think the seriousness of the intellectual project indicate just how terrible um, the defeats of the 20th century were for socialist politics. And so I think that, you know, the seriousness of his commitment to explore these questions in existential terms is an indication of his intellectual and political seriousness. And the attempt to kind of avoid it seems to me not to, um, you know, not to acknowledge just how dire our situation is and the terrible kind of legacies that weigh over us and that we can't simply kind of easily shrug off, much as we might like to. It'd be an easier book if he didn't try to start, yeah, essentially from spiritual freedom from Geist or whatever. I mean, I, I think... The, the brand spiritual spiritualism maybe not spiritualized the band but and most of those kind of words are not you know the brands are tarnished but he you know he leans into it he doesn't he doesn't try and work around this he says yeah this is how you you know secular freedom uh sorry secular faith spiritual freedom then they are necessarily connected and he will go through hegel to um to to get there which i think yeah as phil said that is a sign of how how serious he is i guess the the problem that i had with with this or the the way that the part of the question that i thought was interesting alex and the way you posed it this idea of a therapeutic ethos he he doesn't overdo this but there is certainly a part of of what Hagelin's saying which is about vulnerability like he does construct like he does talk about finitude he does talk about death he does talk about all these things but he also does lean into you know, and I've had a look in the, I've done my researches, I've had a look in the the index and vulnerability appears a lot in the book. So there is a, a starting point, which makes me uneasy and I can't fully explain why um, in, you know, something which needs to be therapeutized or needs to be kind of, um, I don't know, uh, addressed in vulnerability. And obviously the way that he does it isn't completely therapeutic. And he does say, you know, the answer is not straightforward. It still does involve pain and it involves loss. But that starting point in that kind of not just finitude, but also bringing vulnerability, that makes me a little a little uneasy and I can't fully explain why. And I don't think that Michaels and Pippin's um, criticisms really nail this either, to be fair. I don't think um, they sort of really prize open that kind of therapeutic worry that, that I might be partly expressing. I think, I mean, I'm, I mean I think, you know, I think starting in vulnerability is correct, um, not only for kind of a basic, um, you know, recognition of real, the reality that our, 
you know that we are um a you know that we are kind of if we're not to be if we're not to ground our claims in religion then we have to acknowledge finitude and that finitude is the precondition of actual freedom it seems to me very compelling and strong and has to be kind of faced um with sober senses um as you might say so i found that very convincing and um and again also i think like in a way it's kind of it's um appropriate to the 2020s because it acknowledges um, the outcomes of the 20th century in not in a direct way, but in a philosophical way, in opposition to kind of, you know, um, the kind of the social socialist realist posters of proletarian masses storming, you know, kind of storming the world and taking over. Um, it acknowledges uh, the possibility of failure in contingency. And that seems to me an important um, recognition of where we're starting from. Mm. Yeah, I think that's good. And I think just to, I mean, build on that. When I said at the very beginning that what was um, remarkable about the book is that it allows you to, in a certain way, cut through all these layers of politics. I also mean kind of all the the accumulation of defeat, in some sense, um, of the 20th century. And in a way to go back to, um, you know, go back even to, to kind of pre, pre, not pre-Marx, not in the sense of kind of forgetting Marx, but in terms of kind of positioning oneself um, at the birth of modernity. Um, and the possibility of freedom. Um, and so not having to kind of walk back the defeat and of Stalinism and the compromise of social democracy and go, well, actually, let's start from 1968 again, or let's start from <laughs> 1923 again, or let's start from all that kind of thing, but to come back to the essence. And this is why the philosophy is important. And you can't have you can't have just the politics without the philosophy, um, because it is an anthropological vision of where that freedom comes from, where it's rooted in, and not just like, well, I kind of want to not have to work, which cool, sure, but you know, <laughs> where where are you getting those ideas from? Where is that? What is that based in? Yeah, I'm not. I just I just feel like the like particularly framing it as a vulnerability. Like, yeah, Marx accepts we're finite beings. We need. We depend on nature we are not self-sufficient in that sense but you can interpret this as vulnerability or you can have a promethean ethos as some people might put it which um maybe didn't work out so well i don't for think him. they're exclusive i i i, I think um, you're being i no, think we've, you're, been, am we've, I being, we've, we've had this on, we've on had this, this discussion on, before hmm. it's not i think the shakespearean you know the promethean thing is like i mean it's um it's not something you can just simply embrace. It's the Shakespearean thing, you know, the famous soliloquy from Hamlet that you, I think you have to accept both ends. The, um, you know, Is the that kind what of, Hamlet said? You have to accept both ends? I don't, he says, I haven't read it in a while, so. Yeah, have you actually ever read it? It's, I have actually. I've, I've got a copy <laughs> with, a, with a spine and you can see that I've bent over the pages, yeah. He, you know, he swings between the two extremes, how the man is both ape and angel. And it seems to me, you know, that is, you know, the ser that is a serious philosophical proposition. Um, just asserting, you know, just asserting human Prometheanism um, doesn't seem to me to, um, you know, it doesn't, well, it overstates, you know, it overstates things quite bluntly. But also it's, um, it doesn't get over that point that we are finite and that what gives our choices meaning is the fact that we die. You know, so even if we did achieve Promethean aims, you know, radically extended the human lifespan or whatever, we'd still die and we could still, you know, 
have it all end. Be yeah. harmed. Yeah. And, and be harmed, right? I mean, be harmed physically and, and emotionally yeah, indeed, and all the yeah. rest of it. I mean, that, that yeah, is suffer, part of human suffering. Being. Yeah. Prometheus suffers yeah. like, you know, that you got that whole he gets liver. But, but Prometheus, then you go, you know, he's getting his liver pecked out every fucking day. Yeah, right? I mean, that's he's suffering. He's vulnerable. We've we've all got to go to work. I mean, we all we all know that that feeling. Well, okay, I suppose. I mean, Sorry. okay, if you put it if you put it like that, you know, like if you make it the case that Prometheus suffers, you know, that's fine. But if if we're talking in Prometheanism in terms of the kind of, um, you know, I suppose you know, kind of a Strakhanovite view of Prometheanism. That it's all kind of just heroic labor, kind of subduing nature and um, uh, encountering no, and that there is no kind of suffering, but rather joy in the in the labor, and there's no possibility of um, harm, you know. Then that you know that wouldn't count. But anyway, maybe we're getting sidetracked. Yeah. No, but I think it's important because it, it it ends up falling into this kind of um, affirmative modernism, I guess, as you might call it, or you know, as Marshall Berman actually might call it. Um, of just you know rather than understanding kind of modernity and indeed the human it's kind of in a dialectical sense you just present this kind of cardboard cutout version um of of humanity which is again is kind of socialist realism i think phil's right to use that as the as the example as the image to have in mind um so let's move on to the next question um what guarantees that we will use our newfound free time in our post-capitalist society? How, what will guarantee that we use that appropriately? Why would we work freely for others? And this is a point that comes through in Robert Pippin's critique as well as in Benjamin Kunkel's. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think so. Let me, I think, let me just um, preempt the, and undermine the question because there's a reason for this. If, if you will bear with me, Martin Hagelin replies to this, going, "Hang on." When you guys are, are making this critique, you've completely misunderstood me. I argue the whole way through my book really strongly against this notion of a normless, empty time where it's, you're just kind of free to do whatever you do. You wake up, you scratch your balls, you roll out of bed and kind of go lay on the lawn, right? Um, and then maybe play a bit of piano if, if, it, if the fancy takes you. And that's about... Maybe, maybe do a podcast. Life, right? Maybe do a podcast, you know, if you're feeling especially productive. Um, yes, to kind of fight. Um, and anyway, and that's it. And he and Martin Hagelin goes, you know, you've completely misunderstood me. I kind of am pretty um, insistent that this realm of freedom will be full of institutions, right? It will be very, our freedom will be institutionalized. There will be norms, etc. So how have you misunderstood me? And maybe that's the question we should be asking. Why this misunderstanding from very smart people? Yeah, no, I guess it is a it is a real sort of um, it's, it's quite a historical like uh, who's going to shine the shoes in in communism? Um, somebody's supposed to have asked Marx, and he said, "Well, you will." I mean, but I think in some ways, like you, yeah, I think Hagland is clear um, that it's not this kind of. There are other views, like there's a, a book by um, Jerry Cohen, "Why Socialism," where he says, you know, the distribution of work under socialism is going to be more like. A, a camping trip so whoever volunteers to do stuff is gonna is gonna be able to do it um and we're all gonna volunteer because we all kind of you know we all want to be part of the camping trip and that's you know i wouldn't you know instantly dismiss that but that's not Hagland's approach instead he does say yeah there are institutions there is even as we talked about earlier the state persisting like in it's not withering away in quite the same way he's more Hegelian than marxist you might you might say so yeah maybe you're right then what is like why the misunderstanding is it this uh, kind of projection <clears throat> of all these other understandings of communism into uh Hagelin's book which would be a bit strange because he's 
doesn't talk about communism. He talks about uh, democratic socialism. But yeah, I mean, um, I'm, I think you've sort of, yeah, the way you put it, it it's quite clear that Hagland has a bit of a reason to be slightly aggrieved slash perplexed. Um, why, why are people yeah. imputing this view to me when it's, it's not really mine? I think it might be that people have, I mean, people, specifically Benjamin Kunkel here and Robert Pippin, who, as we, as Phil has already hinted at, I think, you know, doesn't even see beyond kind of bourgeois horizon. He can't imagine that subjects might be reformed in a different way so that their dispositions are different. Um, But, you know, I think in in both cases, there's a kind of understanding as freedom in a purely negative sense. Um, You know, and I mean that precisely in the idea that we will be unburdened from the things that burden us now and that we will then be free and that this is a world of of a kind of deinstitutionalized individuals and that's really not what martin Hagelin's argument is Um, but i think maybe there's a a lack of imagination lack of understanding that freedom might be um that we might be formed differently as subjects and we might take our freedom with a big dose of responsibility and not it doesn't even um, free and not freedom meaning freedom from responsibility yeah i don't even think you need to imagine it that far it's just you know it's the same the way I the way I see it is, you know, but I mean, Hagland's argument is rooted in what we do already, you know, like we already undertake kind of a lot of the stuff that we do. A lot of it is done. We do things because we're committed. To, you know, we're involved in all sorts of commitments, and so I mean, he, we mentioned this and we talked about him originally. He falls back on the family, um, and perhaps it's a weakness, but the point being that he's demonstrating that we have all sorts of you know burdensome, serious responsibilities and commitments. To um, you know, to uh, to lovers, to siblings, to parents, to children, whatever, um, to partners, we have all of these commitments um, as an example of the fact that we willingly engage in these open-ended uh, responsibilities outside of the workplace. So you know, it's not as if we need to kind of um, you know go into uh, excruciating intricate detail about the organization of a future socialist society in order to imagine how it might be possible that we might willingly choose to undertake certain kinds of activities rather than just kind of um, loafing about if we had the extra free time. And I think that, you know, that already answers these objections about um, how to envisage uh, whether how people will approach their work. And yeah. Again, I mean, it's a point, I think, if you transform private ownership of the means of production, people relate to work in an entirely different way. That's the premise. I mean, it might be wrong, obviously, but that's the premise of the argument. And it doesn't seem to me to be, you know, like um, so unimaginable that people would have more stake and ownership in their productive public life, in their working life, if they had a direct kind of, if they had greater control and access to an ownership of the means of production as part of that um, as part of that deal, I mean that yeah. you know that just seems to me a basic, you know, basic logic flowing from what we accept about modern individuality to begin with. So I do I share his kind of um, you know his kind of frustration with these seemingly willfully kind of unimaginative responses from Kunkel and Pippin. But he's also he also makes the point about <clears throat> like people will see themselves in these like. It, it it is not an external imposition in the same way because the way that work is allocated is is something which you have a which you have a say in and which you see yourself in in those decisions. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it is a it is a um, uh, a wager that you you know we don't know if this w- would actually 
be true. We we may or may not get to to find out. But I think it, you know, the fact that you well, I'm speaking for myself, <clears throat> you experience different sorts of work very differently depending on whether you've freely chosen the conditions of that work, even within the constraints of capitalism. Um, so to think that the whole wider context could could change that meaning, if it were change itself, that that seems definitely possible to me. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, just a quote from from Hagelin says, under democratic socialism, part of our educational formation is learning to take responsibility for the normative question of which kinds of leisure activities are worthwhile, what is worth doing on the lawn, which loafing activities are actually satisfying and which are corrosive. The point is not to prescribe the same answers for everyone, but to enable us to own our responsibility for the answers to these questions in our practices. Um, which that is from the his response in the LA Review Book Symposium, which I think is very good. Um, I, I guess it still doesn't answer, you know, the question of what if people, you know, under socialism still want to be antisocial, right? That they don't want to be bound by norms or driven by mutual recognition. What do you do about nihilist hedonists in communism? But I guess my answer would be that there would be few of them and you can just lock them up and send them to the hay fever gulag. Um, no, no, that, 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 that isn't a serious response. George and William Clare Roberts definitely go to the gulag, but I'm not sure I would send nihilist hedonists to the gulag. I mean, you yourself had a serious phase of nihilistic hedonism, Alex, and you know you wouldn't want that to send yourself. <laughs> you wouldn't want to send yourself there. No, I mean I um, but I don't. You know, like, what if people do want to be antisocial? You know, I mean, it's no different from what we do with people now. You know, I mean, if they're extremely antisocial and they have like some kind of psychiatric disorder you've got to treat them if it's not psychiatric you try and educate them if or you have you know an extreme you have to kind of you know um put them somewhere where they're not going to harm other people um i think the difference is like he doesn't make a we're going to come back to this but i think a big problem and nobody directly addresses it kind of Leia ep hints at it in her criticisms but he doesn't distinguish between socialism and communism and that seems to me to kind of force um, to force Hegland into all sorts of uh, knots that he doesn't have to tie himself up into. But I just don't see that the antisocial objection or the fact that some people will still be antisocial is, you know, like it's any more of a kind of a knockdown argument against socialism than um, the fact that people are antisocial in life today, you know, like it's it's better to have the the choice than it be imposed on us on us as it is today. I think capitalism is an extremely antisocial um, system, yeah. Yeah. and so no, I, I would yeah, I would prefer I to no, to choose I think it than people have it would, imposed on me. Yeah, I think indeed, I think people would be definitely people would be less antisocial. You know, I mean, I think that follows logically from from the premise. Um, but even if they are, it doesn't seem to me to be like, you know, like, um, yeah, why would it be a problem? You know, like it's almost I think when people think like that, it suggests that they are thinking in terms of the Stasi, you know, that it's them who are thinking in totalitarian terms, that the fact that you have some anti, you know, some antisocial action requires some kind of totalitarian response in order and anything short of that. Um, you know, forces you back into kind of capitalist um, anomie and alienation. Mm. I don't know. Anyway. So um, let's move on to the third um, question, I guess, which we've drawn together, which is how does Hagland's vision work on a global scale, which is something that EP discusses directly and William Clare Roberts sort of hints at as well. Um, what, what do we do, for example, about inequality between political units on a global scale? How do we avoid domination of one by the other? 
you know, if we're all kind of free associations of producers, um, there's still, but there's still a state in Hagelin's vision. Um, you know, how does this work? Some people have even said, well, he, you know, Hagelin's idea is only, a, a, is only about the United States. It's not a global vision, um, which is incorrect. But anyway, you know, it obviously is something that several of the critics have raised as a potential, you know, issue or limitation to his vision. Yeah, I don't, I don't see this as <clears throat> so much of a, a problem with what, what he's saying. Like a, a state in that context, um, i.e. his context of democratic socialism, would seem to me just to be a decision-making unit and that put, with an important um, function of allocating productive resources and making those sorts of decisions. And that's, that's a good thing. You would then be able to, you know, to, to move labor between these different between these different units to make sure <clears throat> that you had the right level of, of labor in, across all of them. I think it's a, um, you know, probably a pre-existing uh, dislike of, of nation states, which, which kind of brings this uh, criticism or, or, or the way that it comes across um, in cash when he says it's hard to imagine a reason for the existence of a global system of states, except as a reflection of competition for territory and resources as inputs for the accumulation of profit. So, I think that that it is possible to imagine a kind of set of you know so Soviet republics or or, or whatever um, where there is cooperation between these these units and coordination, but there is a um, to the extent that making decisions and collectively self legislating is is at the core of what that that state would be. There has to be territorial boundaries, and you can't have the whole of the planet making decisions there has to be a smaller scale and so as soon as you introduce that you you, you come across this idea of, of states of, of some sort i would say so yeah i don't i don't think it's or maybe it's it's a pro i don't see it as so much of a problem because there are others which are closer to what Hagland's saying it seems like one of those like you know if it's a good problem to have if you've <laughs> uh, introduced your theory across the whole of the world and then there are some um some some problems at that at that stage then you've already done You've already achieved quite a bit, and you're probably quite happy uh, with yourself. Um, and I, I would, would, yeah, yeah, I would even wouldn't even go that far. I think if you achieve democratic socialism in the West, even on Hagland's model with its you know um, limitations and problems, if you achieve that in the West, which is to say, in the most kind, in the wealthiest, um, most liberal, and um, most technologically sophisticated societies in the world and in human history. If you achieve that in the US, let alone in the West as a whole, it seems to me that would be a good problem to have. Um, and so, you know, how the um, how would you resolve the problems of the rest of the world? That seems to me, a, it's not insignificant, but it doesn't seem, to, it seems to me to under, to overstate the significance of the problem in itself to be a legacy question of the 20th century. That was so bound up with um, with imperialism, and how kind of the that dialectic of geopolitics and imperialism and um, counter revolution and revolution in the third world became the um, became the kind of the centerpiece of revolutionary politics to the to the detriment of socialist politics in the West itself, right? So if Hagland is you know, if Hagland's argument only applies in the developed capitalist world, that doesn't seem to me to be a problem because as part of its um, resetting the conditions of what we're dealing with, focusing on the developing wor developed world alone seems to me to be um, justified, you know, by the 20th century. And nothing, you know, the 
the developing world is not given us, uh, you know, answers that would resolve the problems of capitalism. That's clear. You know, like, I mean, look, you know, look at China. You know, what did Maoism do? It ended, it laid the ground for uh, capitalist development in China. And the same is true. You know, I mean, this is Branko Milanovic's argument who we had on previously. So I don't see it. I just don't see it as a significant criticism. It's not to say that questions of global development are trivial, um, but they're by no means, they're not politically significant to the project that I think is contained in Hagland's work. All right, so moving through to the last two um, questions that we're pulling out here. Um, firstly, what kind of post-capitalist state does Hagland actually propose? This comes through in uh, Lee Aipi and William Clare Roberts' critiques. Um, he supposedly, um, this is particularly William Clare Roberts, believes he has a contradictory vision of the state. So on the one hand, if it's democratic, then it's still a state which dominates society, albeit one which, where you know the power, power can be restrained quite significantly. And if not, then wouldn't it be better to speak of a withering, withering away of the state? Um, if Hagelin still insists that there is a state in his democratic socialist vision, um, what actually is it? Yeah, I mean, I so I think what they're getting at here is... Um, that it is that Hagland is too, for whatever reason, which is never made clear, you know, like um, he sees the project of democratic socialism as from each according to his ability to each according to his need. But that wasn't Marx's account of socialism. And, you know, obviously it's um, it's not a, it's not, he's, he can disagree with Marx, but he claims that he, you know, he's simply following Marx in that logic. Whereas Marx takes the idea of the, you know, he takes equality to be that equality would be more easily achieved in a socialist society in which there was collective ownership of the means of production. But um, the idea of from each according to their ability to each according to their need belongs to a higher stage of um, development when the narrow horizon of bourgeois right, as Marx put it, has been crossed. And so he contains us. He kind of, you know, he still has this uh, commitment to a state as a centralized political authority for um, guiding society and to that extent Roberts is right you know that it would be um, it would be a structure that would even if it was more democratic and even if you didn't have even if you did have collective ownership of the means of production it would still be something which stood to a certain degree outside of society and would have um, you know domination over that society so you know I think he's there is Robert um, Hagland rather has no kind of escape from this. And it's not clear to me why he wishes to remain trapped, why he wishes to kind of cut off the idea of the withering away of the state, which is um, such a distinctive and important component of the Marxist vision of emancipation. Um, on the point about the social republic, which you mentioned before, Alex, which was part of Roberts's critique, I found this kind of bizarre. So, I mean, the social republic is the kind of, you know, that's the contribution of 1848. Um, and I mean, the most, you know, it was kind of the socialism that stood in the revolutions of 1848 that failed so spectacularly. You know, I mean, that was the point of the social republic was drowned in blood, you know, um, in Paris, at least in 1848. And its failure laid the way for, um, 
for Bonaparte's dictatorship. So when when Claire Roberts, when he says like there's an apolitical tendency in Hegland's thought, I think Hegland's commitment to democracy and his acknowledgement of the fact that we will need majoritarian collective decision making in socialism, at least, is actually the opposite. It's Roberts who is apolitical in imagining that the kind of these freest, freely associating federated communes would be a way to institutionalize, um, you know, to kind of make collective decision making without the requirement for a legislating democratic state. That seems to me much more apolitical in light of, um, you know, the last 150 years and where we are now than Hegland's um, acknowledgement of democracy. Um, now, I take some of Claire Roberts's other points about individual, the scope of individual agency being um, greater and the need for coordination, not just collective decision making. But notwithstanding that, it still seems to me that, you know, um, that Hegland's account can withstand the criticisms that Roberts made. And as for, you know, like Roberts's point, maybe we should try and realize um, republicanism rather than liberalism. That seems to me to be the core of Marx's critique of political economy. I mean, I don't think Marx is a Republican, um, but the point being that if we overcome domination in civil society that arises from uh, our production, the way in which we organize production, then we've overcome effectively, you know, and substantively overcome non-domination. And then the paradise, the kind of the liberal paradise, as Marx puts it, becomes something which is more real. Um, or at least more ac- easily accessed and more e- more easily enjoyed um, once dom- domination has been overcome in the sphere of production. Yeah, I mean, well, nice, nicely put. Not not too much to add, um, really. Other than I think you can sort of see where Hagland is is going. He sort of starts with that the, this idea: the state is historically specific um, to capitalism. So when you transcend capitalism, you'll have a different form of the state. And I think just that. I'm sort of a bit surprised he doesn't fully embrace that that withering away. But maybe maybe that's because uh, the, the communism brand is, is tarnished and he doesn't want to kind of associate with that particular word. But I just wanted to, he, he there's an, a nice um, quote that he has on page 268 um, from Marx. All forms of states have democracy as their truth and therefore they are untrue as much as they are not democracies. I think that's a nice like way to just flip it around. Mm. Um, and I think that kind of, Double negative is the way to do it because you don't, you can't really see what what happens when those two things uh, coexist. But there is a um, an untruth to the contemporary state. That's for sure. Very good. So um, finally, and this is a big one, Hegland evades class struggle and has no real vision of agency. This is the point put in different ways by, particularly by Cash and by Yipi, um, but maybe kind of permeates throughout. And I think it might be one of the most pertinent points to discuss. I don't think that you know, can necessarily hold Hegelin to account entirely for this because you're basically saying, well, hey, this thing that you didn't discuss in the book, you should have done. Um, in which case, you'd just say, well, why don't you write that book? <laughs> but, um, but nevertheless, I, you know, so I don't, I don't think it's something that necessarily undermines Hegelin's claims, but it's something that um, should be discussed because it's, it's, the, it's what the book points at, right? So um, let me kind of just elaborate a little bit on this question. I think that some of the critiques that are made effectively say that Hegland is contradictory. So on the one hand, he evades class struggle um, and the, its traditional forms in terms of trade unions and, you know, the general strike even, um, because those repertoires of, of action, of, aid, of exercising agency are complicit with the traditional Marxism, which he kind of wants to get past once he gets beyond. 
The problem with that traditional Marxism is that it didn't actually break with value, with the value form. Um, it remained either struck in trade unionism or even in, in under socialism, under really existing socialism. Um, it didn't, you know, really abolish class. It kind of made everyone a, a proletarian. Um, and so he, Hegelin wants to get away from that, um, you know, and kind of, you know, made to a certain extent start anew from this question of freedom. Um, but at the same time, he doesn't want to become um, or he doesn't want to dispense with agency you know he's still very much humanist he wants to emphasize that men make history and that we should you know set our norms for ourselves and all all the rest of it and and this is kind of what's key to his dispute with uh moshe postoni which i think george referred to earlier and um was something that we discussed in um, the third episode in this um so anyway i guess you know what is what is hagelin's vision of class struggle is is it actually class struggle which sees through this uh, sees us through to this new mm. world of freedom maybe it even isn't i don't know it's a, i think it's a good a good question and a, a very difficult one to finish on i think um in ep's review one thing she definitely gets right um although she doesn't does it quite uh, politely i would say is kind of questioning why is martin luther king the like the la the the figure of the conclusion yeah. why is it centered around that because it seems like almost that's the implicit model of agency because he doesn't really sort of say you know we just need um <clears throat> you know a million martin luther kings and we'll be we'll be fine but it it is that kind of uh, i guess movement from maybe this is and the title of um jd dean's review i think is socialism for liberals and it's there is a, a sense to which maybe the aim of the book is to get people who are liberals and move them a bit more towards socialism rather than to constitute any agency <clears throat> within a kind of socialist audience, which, you know, may, might or might not exist at this point in time. But yeah, I think there is, that is, it is unsatisfying. Um, but maybe that's because your expectations have been built up so much that you're hoping that there's going to be this consistent philosophical theory, <laughs> yeah. which then goes through and then works out this theory of, of the party and then gives you like a, a roadmap. And then it's like, oh, well, no responsibility now to think. We just got to put it into, into play. <laughs> and yeah, that's obviously not, not going to happen. Um, but yeah, I think the, if he does have a vision of agency, it is a kind of an, um, a moral individual, maybe too much, um, which obviously doesn't really fit in with, everything that he says about <clears throat> the state and the kind of the collective um, endpoint. Um, so, yeah, I think it is a, it is something to, to kind of push, push Hagland on. Definitely. I, I mean, I, I agree with everything George said. I'd add a bit more. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it, uh, we've mentioned it before when we're talking about Hagland, but I find the, you know, the kind of the genuflection to Martin Luther King, it's, um, it's kind of 51st state ideology, where every you know every kind of political problem has to be rooted through some American version of it in order for it to be meaningful, and that seems to me to actually to kind of uh, precisely get away from you know the actual actuality of politics in various places around the world. But you know at the same time, um, you know he's an iconic figure, and it is a way to kind of. Um, you know, for better or for worse, and it is a way to address some of those problems. And one of the advantages of it is that there is, you know, as Martin Luther King's thought developed, you know, towards the end of his life, the way in which it evolved from, um, you know, in a carefully and reflective way, it kind of naturally, organically evolved into socialism from the struggle for civil rights and the need for kind of recognition and dignity and autonomy and all of those things. 
And so that works very effectively to demonstrate the interdependence mm. of those things. And I think that is, you know, part of the appeal of using King as a model. Um, so it's not only kind of um, the fact that he's a, you know, kind of a, a world-renowned figure by virtue of American American influence and even perhaps American empire, but also, like I say, civil rights kind of unfolded into socialism in his own thinking in ways that I think probably map onto Hagelin's project, um, you know, quite effectively. I, I think with regards to kind of collective agency, it's certainly implicit in the fact that he takes Marx's account of, um, you know, of the critique of political economy and doesn't add anything to it. He simply takes its, um, you know, renders it in terms of time more explicitly than Marx does, though Marx does it fairly explicitly himself. Um, you know, so, I mean, I don't think that he's required necessarily to bring out a full social theory of agency. Um, what is lacking, I suppose, is a concrete kind of um, political agent, perhaps more than kind of a social agency, because that yeah. I think is implicit in the fact of in his critique of political economy. Well, I mean, I think this is this is to the point and, you know, relates to the question of Martin Luther King is that his vision of politics, it's implicit, so it's not explicit, um, is one which is um, directly political in the sense of um, wanting to overthrow the state, um, to re-transform the state, um, go down to the very basis of, you know, revaluing value, which means getting rid of the whole apparatus of capitalism. Okay, right. Um, That then, you know, I think brings us to the question, which I think is implicit in a lot of the discussion and the back and forth, particularly in the LA Review of Book Symposium, about, you know, about class struggle and particularly the traditional vehicles of class struggle. And here there's a, a, a similarity between Hagland and kind of, you know, value form theorist kind of school of Marxism, which, um, you know, seeks to dispense with or certainly be critical of kind of trade unionism because it identifies in kind of trade union consciousness and I mean, this is, you know, kind of following from Lenin, but I mean, specifically within their lens of the value form of, you know, effectively workers won't don't have an interest in breaking free from capitalism. They want a better deal within capitalism. And how do you create the kind of collective agent, collective political agent, which is seeking to go beyond that? Right. Um, I, I, Cash, um, Connell Cash puts this pointedly um, in, in his critique, saying, you know, Hagelin's limitation is in his is in his conception of who as really existing actors within capitalist society will see this transition as something that they both can carry out and have the desire to carry out. Um, and so, you know, um, you obviously don't want to um, fall, you know, in I guess there's the risk in critiquing. Um, kind of trade unionism um, and its limitations. I mean, which anyway is extremely weak anyway today. So it's you know trade union like trade unions couldn't carry out a revolution even if they wanted to. But you know Hegland is suggesting that I suppose they wouldn't want to. There's no desire there to do so. Um, but you know what's the alternative to that? What kind of collective agent would actually have the leverage to and and the power the collective could build the collective power to do that? I mean you know we're not going to resolve this question in this podcast right now. Um, but I think it it is, I think it's telling that, that the discussion naturally leads there. Going, you know, even in Hagelin's brilliant book, you can, that's where you end up. Well, I guess the yeah, but does it undermine the kind of normative force or the appeal of the book if there's no um, one to to enact it? Like, does it reduce the 
the beauty of an idea of a painting if nobody could paint it um not trying to be too philosophical but like it, it i mean because this is i guess what i was yeah. left feeling is like yeah i think this is a consistent set of arguments and you know grounding <clears throat> i guess moving some of some ideas some things that I already thought into different areas that's that is definitely worthwhile but it doesn't you know i kind of wanted more or less the same things before and after and i'm in the same position of not feeling like not feeling like there's a any any way to uh to achieve these these things i would i think i want freedom but how do i actually get it um and that's you know if you go into a philosophy book expecting that to be resolved then maybe that's you know just that's on you um and that's an yeah because that's an entirely different uh different question Yeah, um, Phil, I, I don't know if you have anything to add on this question. Otherwise, we'll move on because we're not going to resolve it here. But I think no. the challenge that Hegland's book sets to us, I guess, is if you're going to take this seriously and make kind of the question of our, you know, taking responsibility for the time of our lives, the kind of central guiding um, question of, of, of politics even, um, then then what you have to start doing is thinking of, you know, how to elaborate that politics, how to kind of put this idea to work. Um, which, um, which doesn't mean, as he says, you know, it doesn't mean dispensing with concerns with civil liberties or with, um, living standards or, you know, ordinary freedoms or anything else, um, and kind of other reforms within capitalism, but of kind of refocusing one's politics around the central question. And I haven't, you know, personally, haven't got round to, <laughs> haven't got round to do that, but I think it's probably worthwhile. It probably is a more fruitful and serious way to, to thinking about the world today than, than anything else is. So um, just to round this out, do we want to do the discussion of climate change? Because that's where Hagelin finishes his LA Review of Books um, point. Um, and so just to elaborate a little bit on this, um, one question which had kind of emerged organically in the last episode that we had done on this is that how do we combat climate change while not submitting to political theology? Political theology here meaning some kind of preordained idea of what should be done um, of what or what we owe to some, you know, God, authority, whatever, um, which, you know, a lot of discussion of climate change does. It says, you know, this is the way that the climate should be because nature says so. And we have to make sure that the climate conforms to that. Can we deal with climate change without submitting to this political theology? Now, uh, let me just quote from Hegland. Um, nothing makes our predicament clearer than the cr climate crisis in which we find ourselves, he concludes at the end of the symposium. Um, he continues saying that it's commonplace to say that we are responsible for destroying the ecosystem and explain ecocide with reference to our supposed greedy or selfish human nature. But the issue is that we cannot actually own and take responsibility for the economic life that we ourselves reproduce through our practices. Um, so, you know, Hegland is you know, dispensing with a lot of the baggage, the kind of philosophical baggage that a lot of climate change politics has. Um, but to restate the question, can we combat climate change while not submitting to political theology? Well, <clears throat> I've made this point on a few episodes that I, I seem to, any book or argument that finishes with sort of climate change as a call to action, as a call, like you have to do these things now, otherwise everybody's, you know, everybody's fucked. I don't, it just... It, I've, I've started noticing it and I find it very unsatisfying. And I actually wrote in the, the margin or at the bottom of the page at the end, what a disappointment to finish with climate change because of of, of Hagman's book on that page 380 that he introduces it. Because it's just like, 
okay, you've already made the case for the for finitude, for you know that being the grounding of the value of our lives, and it's just you, you don't need to over uh, over elaborate that just to make a an easy point for people. It it doesn't add anything because we're already you know we're already dependent on the environment. We we know this. That's part of our and this is what was my earlier point about vulnerability. It just seems like he's over over egging that. Um, <clears throat> and he says our our ecological crisis is a stark reminder that our lives depend not only on the fragile self-maintenance of our material bodies, but also on the fragile material self-maintenance of the global ecosystem to which we belong. And it's just like, yeah, this has become a, you know, a, a, a box to tick at the end of a book now. It's like, well, all of these things that I'd been arguing for anyway, they're just additionally more important because if we don't do them, then the world is destroyed. And it's a bit of a bit of a kind of moral blackmail almost. Um, and I just don't think it's necessary. I think the argument stands entirely on its own merits like we have a finite life this is sufficiently important anyway what 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 does this add other than as a kind of you know people will be expecting to see it and might criticize him if he doesn't if he doesn't say it so i that's that's my take which is you know probably relatively crankish on this i i, I share your frustration i think in, in general terms where it's this box sticking exercise where it's like yeah well and climate change um uh i think in this case i, I don't find it so bad because it does point us to at least suggests that we think for ourselves um, how we might, you know, approach philosophically, politically climate change, where we see ourselves as masters and try to um, claim back our the time of our lives and decide how we produce and what we produce, um, and that we should be masters. And I think it's he's hinting there at a way of getting away from the political theology of climate change that so often hampers it. You know, of the ecosystem as as kind of preordained by nature and it must be kept in this specific balance rather than seeing it from a human point of view of saying what do what ecosystem services do we depend on but, and how do we maintain yeah. them no I, I i take your point but it's the this is already sufficiently important like the claim to take control of our lives and he doesn't put it in those those terms that's me inserting my own uh reading of it i guess but take you know take um collective ownership of our of our finite time that is something that you want to do because you only have one life right it's not because of you know all of the destruction of, of of the climate or any external requirements it's just it's internal i would say to what his um notion of freedom is yeah. so yeah i think i um, agree yeah i just don't see why he resorts to this it'd be stronger if he was a you know just if he was a bit more like and climate change is doesn't matter in in this because it's already sufficiently important in and of our in and of itself to do this but that's a bit of a um yeah that's that's a different sort of style of writing and approach i would say yeah i agree and i'd even go as far as to say i think ecocide is precisely a concession to the kind of is, political yeah. theology that he's trying to and one you know kind of so one foot is in the quagmire and the other foot is kind of out but he's sinking you know he's kind of uh he's falling off the bank and back into the mire um I mean, the very notion of ecocide is just, I think, offensive, um, but also, you know, more point, more to the point, in, con, in inconsistent with his kind of uh, humanist project. So I agree with what George yeah. said. And yeah, I'm also no, sceptical no. of an emergency politics as well. And we've talked about this a great deal in our book club last year as well. So, Okay. Um, 
I think this is a good place to to say goodbye. Um, maybe just as a last opportunity to say what we've learned. Has this process, this process, I mean, the the, the reading club and you know this first section on freedom, has this process made you reapproach any political questions in a different way, or maybe even revolutionized the way you see the world? Um, I, I was already hinting at. Yeah, I mean, I was hinting at at the way that I mean, I I kind of. Not yet, but I think if I'm going to sit down and think about it, I think, well, okay, if I'm going to reevaluate politics uh, and the world in relation to this question of time, put that really centrally, I think that will change my orientation on certain questions a little bit. Yeah. I suppose I'd say, I mean, it was, you know, kind of some of these debates were interestingly like came up in the 2019 election. And it sounds kind of a trivial point to make with respect to... Um, in Britain, yeah. Sorry, in Britain, yeah. Um, it sounds kind of, it's a, you know, given... Um, wait, 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 wait. Wait, if Hegland is wrong for finishing on climate change, you can't just <laughs> go like, I'm finishing on Brexit here. You can't do that. No, not on Brexit. But uh, one of the debates around the um, around the Corbynista project was whether to give kind of to make public holidays part of the platform. And, you know, I mean, you so, I mean, listeners might recall, you know, our criticisms of that, of the 2019 Corbynista program, the broadband communist program, where it offered all of these kinds of tremendous things, including, um, you know, kind of even, you know, the um, flirting with the idea of fully automated luxury communism at the kind of uh, fringe of the Corbynista program. Um, but it wasn't connected to any kind of notion of democratic agency. But I thought the public holidays point, you know, kind of offering people public holidays is one of the things that was debated. And that seems to me like, um, you know, it's an interesting, well, look, I'm persuaded of it. My point is only that I I was thinking in terms of how far free time has to be embedded in a political project today. Um, you know, so that was what I was already thinking of. And so then to come to out of 2019, so to come to a philosophical book that made time and control over time and how you dispose of time, finite time, a centerpiece of its claims. So, you know, it was very interesting. So I suppose I don't think it's added anything new particularly, but it certainly helped me to systematize and ground like, you know, inchoate thoughts that were kind of drifting around in my head. And it's also, I think, I'd be it'd be fair to say it's renewed my commitment, secular faith, if you will. It's renewed my commitment to a vision of freedom, uh, you know, kind of a humanistic vision of freedom that's rooted in a kind of a square and sober confrontation with um, with our limits. And the fact that he ties those two things together, that our agency is dependent on our limits, is a profound and important thought. And he's restated it. And I think that in itself is uh, is an important and worthwhile accomplishment. Yeah, no, I think that that's probably the thing that I've most taken from it is just the the more Hegel um, is in is in the book, the the better, the more I've enjoyed it. Although I think you know to be to be perfectly honest, I I don't think it's revolutionised the way I I see the world. Almost, it's made me. It was an alternative. Um, kind of thing that I could have thought, okay, this is central, this idea of, of freedom and, and linked to, to free time. This is something which, you know, is, is this the thing to, to focus on and to think about? And no, it, it, it's not. It's made me think that essentially any kind of program that doesn't put control, doesn't put power centrally, like bank holidays don't, don't convince me. It doesn't, you know, in, as part of a political program because it's not going to change the way that I control or don't control my my work environment when I go back to work after the bank holiday. So it's kind of made me 
I don't know. I, I kind of don't. Jesus, want to I'm not saying. I'm just saying it's, bank holidays only. That's not what yeah. I'm saying. No, but I, I, I don't. I, I guess my conclusion, to be honest, is that it's made me realise that I was right all along. Which is like the the worst thing that you can take from a book. It just shows the, that bank that holidays and Brexit. Let's not let's not debate this. <laughs> bank here. holidays um, and Brexit. We'll let we'll let listeners decide whether they whether they want to endorse you know Phil's beautiful vision or or George's. Yeah, um, but but I should you know to be false. George's Stakhanovite. George's, you got to get yeah. down the coal. No public holidays for you. Got to get down the coal mines because <laughs> yeah. we need more tractors. No, but to, I mean to be fair though, his his view of free time is is far like wider than bank holidays or UBI or anything like that. So I don't want to tie him with that brush, but it does. I guess my ultimate conclusion is. I want to read more books about. You want control. something that's angry. You yeah. want something that's angry. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. You, you, you didn't get your rock self with this. Yeah, I'm, I'm becoming uh, more and more anyway. of a crank. It's impossible to change that direction. Yeah. Mm, well, um, we'll let that uh, we'll let that stand on on its own merits. Um, thank you, everyone, so much for being a patron, for making this possible, for spending your hard earned ten dollars a month, which is ultimately um, rooted in your finite time. Um, and so, thank you for making this possible, um, as well as making the Reading Club and all our other shows possible. I think it's also a sign of your commitment to trying to understand the world and thinking deeply about new solutions um, and how uh, we might resolve our condition of unfreedom. Um, so I think that's great. Um, I want to thank you for uh, accompanying us uh, on this journey, um, for all your questions and engagement, and I'm sure many more questions and criticisms and whatnot will emerge from this. So we want to obviously continue on the discussion. We're going to continue on this discussion because uh, the next month we will be moving on to the second section of the 2023 syllabus, examining the question of legitimacy through a reading of Jürgen Habermas's classic Legitimation Crisis. And we'll be posting exactly what the reading is month by month um, very shortly after this comes out. Um, but, you know, the more the merrier. So um, do tell your friends, I'm sure if you like it, um, you must have good taste in people. And so your friends will like it too. So do let them know about this. Um, and we will look forward to catching up with you again in a month's time. Thank you for following along. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Think if we actually, wanted to actually, I've, changed, I've, I've changed my mind. We need to stick the boot in a little bit to Hagman because he that's the one of the only times where he goes for the easy option and he's like, Well, right, if we don't do, do that, then we're all fucked. So Yeah, well that's fair, but actually. It's true, so but this that. no, this is why why don't you it's instead let Hagman stick the boot into you because you know, if you agree with him this far, then you should take oh, go don't. with him on climate I'm... change as well. There is no fucking climate emergency. It's fucking there, made there up horseshit. There, there isn't. There no, fucking there is. isn't. Look, look. Oh there my god. Is. There fucking isn't. Like there you absolutely isn't. It. I do look, fucking just dismiss because you don't it. like the greens doesn't mean you can't dismiss look, it. I do like, fucking dismiss it. Terrible climate change thing. People like but you. It's a condition of. It's a condition like you of our civilization. Locked up again. It's a <laughs> no. That's exactly your problem. You can only reject. You can only re react to it in response to other people's politics, rather than the problem in and of itself. Look, look, look. <laughs> let's let's. We just. Let's.